Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Mr. Uh, League said, I do most of the work in CAD. I, I do most of the work except for what the work that everybody else does. So just want to clarify that a little bit. <clears throat> now, it, it is wonderful to be on the Feast of Trumpets as the Holy Days begin. Uh, another year. <clears throat> so much is happening in the world, as we know, around us, which really makes these days more and more meaningful. What does this day mean and what can we learn from it? Let's go ahead and turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. Levit- Leviticus chapter 23 and, uh, and verse 1. Of course, this is a review. This is uh, nothing new. We've uh, read this many, many times. On the Holy Day, he begins to introduce the Holy Days by first introducing the Sabbath. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwelling. So he actually starts talking about the holy days by introducing the Sabbath. And, of course, we understand they, they stand and fall together. You can't take the Sabbath away from the holy days, and you can't take the holy days away, away from the Sabbath. So as the chapter goes on, he begins introducing the other, the, the, the annual holy days, the annual Sabbaths. Uh, verse 5 talks about the Passover, uh, the type that was a type of Christ becoming our Passover, a sacrifice for sin. Verse 6 introduces the days of unleavened bread, signifying our coming out of sin and becoming Christ-like. Verse 16 explains the feast of first fruits and called Pentecost in the New Testament. And of course, we understand the saints in the New Testament church represent the first fruits of the kingdom of God. And that's what we learn on that day. Verse 24 introduces the first of the fall holy days, the Feast of Trumpets that we're keeping today, signifies events leading up to Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Verse 27, the Day of Atonement, as Mr. League mentioned, uh, when Satan the devil is captured and bound and banished for a thousand years. And what a wonderful result that will be. Verse 34 uh, starts the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days that represent the millennium and the wonderful world of tomorrow's world with Christ ruling over the earth. And then, of course, the eighth day, a totally separate feast at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which represents the general resurrection and the hope that all mankind has for the chance, their first genuine chance at salvation for billions and billions of people. A brilliant plan, a wonderful plan, a loving plan, and a fair plan from a fair and loving God. And what a privilege it is that we know it and we understand it and we can walk through it during these days. But let's focus on the day that we are here for today. Of course, that's in verse 23. Let's go to verse 23 in chapter 23. 
It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So it's a holy gathering, a time to abstain from work, so we don't do our normal jobs today. But how is it different from the other holy days? Well, Palube's Bible Dictionary tells us this. He says, The Feast of Trumpets was the Feast of the New Moon, uh, which fell on the first of Tishri, uh, that is the new year of the civil year, the Jewish civil year, as opposed to the sacred calendar, which began in the spring. It differed from the ordinary festival of the new moon in several important particulars. It was a day of solemn rest from ordinary labor, and a holy convocation was held. As opposed to the other new moons, the monthly observance of the new moon did not have a commanded rest or a commanded assembly. Instead of a mere blowing of the trumpets of the temple at the time of the offering of the sacrifices, it was a day of blowing of trumpets. So there were other times when trumpets were blown uh, over the sacrifices, but this day was special because apparently they were, they were blown throughout the day. Alfred Adersheim in the book The Temple, Its Ministry and Services, says this, During the whole of New Year's Day, that is, the Feast of Trumpets, trumpets and horns, or, or shofars, ram's horns, were blown in Jerusalem from morning to evening. Can you imagine? Throughout the whole day and, and how far away they could be heard around Jerusalem. As you heard the horns and the trumpets blowing from morning to evening. In the temple it was done, even on the Sabbath, if the day fell on the Sabbath. Since the destruction of Jerusalem, the horn is blown in every synagogue. It has already been hinted that the instruments used were not the ordinary priests' trumpets, but horns. The Mishnah holds that any kind of horns may be blown except those of oxen and calves in order not to remind God of the sin of the golden calf. So the ram's horn is is uh, blown in the synagogue on this day. Apparently throughout the day, that was the original observance in the temple. But why? <clears throat> what is significant about it? What's so special about the blowing of trumpets on this day? What does it mean? Let's find out a little bit. Let's turn over to Numbers chapter 10. What does it symbolize? And what do we learn from it? <clears throat> Are we to toot our own horn? You know, you, as they say, you toot your own horn and you blow your reward. So, is that what this day is all about? No, there's something very, very significant about it. Numbers chapter 10 and verse 1, it starts talking about some of the uses of the silver trumpets that they were to make. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. You know, they had a, a lot of people there. It was hard to get everyone going in the same direction. And they didn't have a PA system, apparently. So... This was the next best thing. If you have a large group of people, maybe several million, it's hard to have everyone going and coming in the same direction. Trumpets were used. 
When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. So they were used for signaling. Um, <clears throat> when you sound the advance a second time, uh, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow but not sound the advance. A different signal. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets, and they shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generation. So it was even significant who would blow the trumpets. Not everyone was designated that responsibility. Uh, notice in verse 10, Also in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So there were a number of different times when they were, they were blown. <clears throat> But we skipped over verse 10. And let's read that, because that's what I'd like to uh, focus on. Actually, verse 9. For today, when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Besides ordinary signals, besides ways of organizing the camp and moving together and announcing the, 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 the noon moons and the sacrifices, they were to be blown in a time of war. Now, why? Was it just to gather the troops? Was it just to gather those who would fight? Was it just to warn the people? Or was there something else? As God said, when you're in trouble and you sound the alarm, I will hear you, I will remember you, and I will save you. Brethren, what do the trumpets symbolize for us? Why are we here? You know, this day shows that there is shortly coming a time of great distress and war. The blowing of trumpets symbolizes that. But as we talk about that today and as we hear more about it this afternoon, I'd like to emphasize the fact that the trumpets don't just reflect a time of war coming. For God's people, they symbolize deliverance. And they symbolize our trust in our deliverer. If you want a title for the sermon this morning, it's simply Trumpets and Trust. Trumpets and Trust. How much do our people in our land today trust God? Would you say there, there's a lot of trust in God in our, in modern Israel today? Well, I think we would agree that there's not very much trust, and that's why some of the things that are prophesied are going to come. Let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1. Why hard times are coming. Because there is a lack of trust in our, in our people today. 
and our nations, modern Israel, those who should know better, those who should know God, because he revealed himself to them. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1, Again, the, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet, now this is not the silver trumpet, this is the ram's horn, that's the word in there, the shofar, if he blows the shofar and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning... If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. You know, we have a job to do, don't we? That's what this work is doing. Not just giving a warning of punishment to come, but giving our people the answer to what to do. That their job is to turn to God and to trust Him in their lives to be saved, to have deliverance. That's our job. Verse 6, he says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, He's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you and I are here for a very special purpose. Not just to play church. Not just to come and occupy a seat. Not just to put on a smile and be friendly to each other, you know. It's good to be friendly to each other when we come to that. That's fine. That's good. We should. But why are we here? Why has God called us today in the church? Because the body of Christ is to do a job, and a big part of that job is to warn our people they've gone astray and implore them to turn back to the God of heaven to trust in Him. This day helps us to grasp that. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1. He says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, like a shofar, like a ram's horn. You know, it's interesting that the, the trumpet blown on this day, the ram's horn, is, is not as pretty of an instrument as far as the sound goes, as the silver, as the crafted trumpets that have a, a, a more melodious sound and a pretty sound. The shofar was more of a blast or a shout. When we look at Re, uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 23, even the word blowing of trumpets has the meaning of a shout. Lift up your voice. So the shofar is, is sort of a voice being lifted up in the form of, of, of this horn. It's just shouting with the instrument, in a sense. <clears throat> Not a particularly beautiful sound in, in that sense as other instruments. Well, think about it. What is the message that the church is getting out today? Is it a smooth message? Is it a soothing message? Is it one that's designed to give people something to, 
to, to, to help them to go to sleep by, you know, or at the end of the day? I think you know the answer. No, it's designed to make them uncomfortable. It's designed to challenge them and, and, and put them in a position where they either have to accept it or reject it, but there's no middle ground. You know, that was Mr. Armstrong's approach years ago, and that continues to be Mr. Meredith and the other uh, telecast presenters today. The message is hard. The message is strident. It's a blast. He said, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions. Don't just preach smooth things, soothing things. Tell them what's wrong. That's what we're doing. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. We say we we trust in God as a nation, and I'm going to prove that to you. Have you got a dollar bill in your pocket? If you do, take a look. You can't borrow mine. You have to use your own. Just got one here. Or a coin, if you have a coin, a quarter. What does it say on this dollar bill, along with a lot of other things? It says, in God we trust. And you know, with the stimulus packages, there's a whole lot more of these that say, in God we trust, floating around. Even our money that's in our pocket in this country says we trust in God. And yet do we? Are we hypocritical? You know, we like to think of ourselves as a good country. We like to think of ourselves as a, um, the conscience of the world. We're quick to tell other nations when they're doing something wrong. When they have human rights abuses that we don't approve of, and yet, what's the basis for our judgments? It's not God. It's our own expediency, right? Do we trust in God? It's our own definition of good. What's in it for us? Verse 3. He says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. We are a people addicted to endless pleasure and an ever-expanding entertainment industry. You think about it and look around you. Absolutely addicted to, to just having fun while the house burns down. Anything that will amuse us and keep us occupied as a people. We're addicted to pleasing the self at the expense of others in this country. Too many of us think nothing of climbing over someone else if we have to do it to get ahead. Honor and integrity is becoming harder and harder to find in our country today. Is God happy about that? Verse 4, indeed, you fast for strife and debate. You know, we are, as a people, addicted to endless debate. Just look on the Internet. Just look on any blog that has to do with a moral issue, especially a conservative moral issue. 
and look at the endless debate that goes on. Well, that's your opinion. You can't say that. That's not true. That's our nation today. And to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out his sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? What is God looking for out of our people today? What does he want from modern Israel? To simply trust him and to look to him and to seek him. And that's our message, because our people have lost their way in trusting him. Verse 6, is this not the fast that I've chosen, God says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? If we would only trust God. He's been very patient, but the warning is that there will come a time when time is up. That's what this day tells us. You know, it's interesting. There was a time when this nation, uh, by and large, did recognize, even in an imperfect way, that God was our shield and protection, that he was the one that we put our trust in. We know the different miracles that happened, Dunkirk and other, other miracles in our history. Well, there was one that happened even before the Revolution. It's told in the book, The Bulletproof George Washington. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I hadn't heard of this until recently. But I'd like to read you a little bit about this. This happened during the French and Indian War. Uh, The foreword of this uh, book starts this way. George Washington, the father of our country, is well known to Americans for the accomplishments of his adult life. Commander-in-chief during the American Revolution, statesman, president. Few, however, are familiar with this, his youth or know anything more about it than perhaps the folklore surrounding the hatchet and cherry tree incident. Yet possibly his younger years form the most important time for our national hero, for often it is what occurs in one's youth that determines what we, one becomes as an adult. It's for this reason that the account of not only what happened to, but of what happened around the young George Washington during the Battle of the Manga, Monongahela is so important in western Pennsylvania. Washington was only a 23-year-old colonel at the time of the battle, and certainly the details of this dramatic event helped to shape his character and even confirm God's call on this young man. Washington's part in the battle is indisputably one of the most significant events of his early life. His life literally hung in the balance for more than two hours. Fifteen years after the battle, the chieftain of the Indians Washington had fought against sought him out and gave this account to Washington of what had happened during the battle. Here's what he said. He said, I'm a chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far Blue Mountains. I've traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. It was a horrible massacre of the British uh, soldiers. I think 1,300 or more British regulars died and other colonials. General Braddock, his massacre. <clears throat> this is the setting. He said, I called to my young men and I said, quick, let your aim be certain. And he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which but for you knew not how to miss. 
"'Twas all in vain, a power mightier far than we, we shielded you. I can't have come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle." The author continues, today, few have ever heard about this important story. However, it has not always been the obscure account that it has now become. George Washington was shot numerous times, half a dozen or more times, and he never fell. He never had a scratch. The point is, brethren, we in this country used to know. I never heard this in school growing up. But this was a part of our history and a part of our culture at one point in time. Where have we gone? Again, our job is to sound the alarm and let our people know what's going on and let them know there is a power they can turn to and trust. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 8 because we find what is going to happen not just to modern Israel today, but ultimately the whole world, symbolized by these trumpets. The seven trumpet plagues. We know, of course, leading up to the trumpets, in Revelation 6, it opens up with the seven seals being opened. The first four are the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringing much destruction and death and deception coming on the earth. The fifth seal is the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble and persecution on the church and the saints. The sixth seal, the heavenly signs introducing the one-year period known as the Day of the Lord. And then the seventh seal is opened, and that introduces the seven trumpet plagues. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. We see these seven Uh, Trumpet plagues revealing events that happened during the one-year period known as the Day of the Lord. Revelation 8 and verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And then this is what happens. Verse 7, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Fires like we have never seen. You know, the fires in Texas are massive and huge, but this is hard to comprehend. A third of all the trees around the world burned up, the smoke and the haze and the ash... And the fires, that's what's going to happen. Verse 8, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died. 
and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, massive devastation. Millions and millions and billions of of life forms in the sea destroyed. Perhaps great tsunamis that destroy the ships. We haven't seen anything yet. Verse 10, then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood and the third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. We already read reports of coming water wars and conflict over water in different parts of the, the world. What about when this happens? This is what God said would happen. The fourth trumpet, verse 12, sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Chapter 9 and verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit. And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and of them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It's interesting that Joel talks about this day and compares also the, the, the swarming armies to locusts and the plagues. And you, as you read on, you, you think it's hard not to get the imagery of, of squadrons of helicopters, attack helicopters in warfare of a beast power, that we can see begin to, the foundations are being laid for this happening over in Europe. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. They were like horses prepared for battle. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth and breastplates of iron. The beast's power taking shape. And going out to destroy. Verse 12, one bull is passed. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth trumpet sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So then we find this massive army coming from the east that is coming to fight against the army of the beast. Verse 16, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision, and those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. Awful, awful destruction by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their powers in their mouths and in their tails. 
But verse 20, the rest of mankind, you know, you know, one of the most unbelievable verses in the whole Bible. After all this, it says, the rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they didn't repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They didn't turn to the one that they should trust. Why is it so hard for human beings to really, really trust God? Well, we see how hard it is because it takes this to bring us as humanity to the point where we're, we will. Finally, <clears throat> chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The seventh trumpet sounds. And that's when Jesus Christ himself steps in. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So horrible trumpet plagues with unspeakable devastation, but all leading to Jesus Christ personally intervening to save mankind from himself. The object of our hope, our faith, our trust is coming back. And God willing, if we are faithful, it will coincide with our being changed and our entering the God family at that same seventh trump to be saved. That's why we trust in him, because he's God and he will save us. He can save us and he will save us. He promises And that's the message of this day for us and ultimately for the whole world after some hard times. So our job is to cry out and warn as many who will listen that now is the time to turn to God and trust him, not in their money, not in their military, not in their alliances, not in their power, not in their status or position. It all comes down to trusting God. But brethren, what about us? What will happen to us? How can we make it through the coming difficult times? We know that God has promised a place of safety for his people, but we know we're going to have to go through some hardship as well. Let's look at another Man who went through hardship, Psalm chapter 34 and verse 19, David talks a lot about trust in the Psalms. Have you ever noticed that? 
you start going through and you think, that's a, that was a major theme of his life. And it wasn't just all bedtime stories. <laughs> when he wrote them, it was times when he was fleeing for his life. In fact, let's look at Psalm chapter uh, 34. It's interesting if you have uh, a heading in your Bible. Mine says, the happiness of those who trust in God. And then the heading of the actual chapter says, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Was this a, a hard time for David? I mean, he was having to faint being insane to save his life. Think about it. Was, was David challenged in his life to trust God in difficult times? And that's when some of the most profound uh, words and, and encouragement come from the most difficult times of his life. Notice in verse 19, he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. None of those who trust in him. Verse 1 of chapter 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. He's the one that we can, we can trust in. Verse 6. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him from out all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see what the Lord, that the Lord is good. Blessed and happy is the man who trusts in him. Who trusts in him. Chapter 36 and verse 7. Chapter 36 and verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your health, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light we shall see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your uprightness, your righteousness to the upright in heart. Chapter 37, verse 1. He says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Over and over and over again. We can't even read all of them. Let's read one more, verse 37. Mark, he says, the blameless man, and observe the upright for the future. That man is peace. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. Brethren, how important is that? 
in the coming time that this day symbolizes. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Why? Because they trust in Him. Brethren, do we trust God? The trumpet-blowing relationship, let's say. We can use a metaphor. Does it describe our relationship with God? Or does our trust sometimes waver? This is the day. This day is, is about coming to the point where we have total trust and faith in Him. Not always knowing exactly what will turn out in the short term. You know, that's part of trust, isn't it? It's not like a genie or a magic wand that we wave, that when we trust Him, we automatically always get what we want or need. That's why we trust Him, because sometimes we don't immediately get what we need. And that's where trust is built. And we trust Him that He has our interest at heart. Let's look at an example. God will strengthen our trust if we ask Him to. Remember, He did with David. Remember the disciples. They talked to Christ and they said, Increase our faith. Help us to trust more. Because we are human. We need it. Judges chapter 7. Let's turn over to Judges chapter 7. There's a really interesting story about a man here who did great things. Won the battle against the Midianites. Blew a trumpet. He's famous for it. His name was Gideon. You know the story. Judges chapter 7, verse 19. Talks about how Gideon uh, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outposts of the camp of the Midianites. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand. And they cried, The sword of the Lord in Gideon! And every man stood in his place around the camp, and the whole army ran and fled. And they won a great victory in that day against Midian. But there's more to the story. Because... Gideon didn't start off with a lot of confidence. Let's get a little background. Let's go back to Judges chapter 6 and verse 11. Remember how this started? The Midianites were afflicting the Israelites so much that they would come and burn their crops after they had, uh, had grown and after they had collected them. And they were persecuting them in many ways. So the angel of the Lord, verse 11 in chapter 6, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now Gideon was a little suspicious, uh, uh, you know, skeptical. Why is this... Angel of the Lord calling me a mighty man of valor. I'm actually threshing wheat in hiding because of the persecution of our enemies. So he said, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then is all this happening? And where are the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. God, I believe 
I know about the miracles, but those were a long time ago. Why aren't they happening now? Why have you let this this persecution occur? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And Gideon said, he still was skeptical. He said, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. You know, how, how are you, how is this possibly going to happen? It doesn't make any sense. And of course, then the Lord said, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. <clears throat> but Gideon was skeptical. Verse 17, then he said, Okay, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you that talks with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So you know the story how he he prepared a young goat and unleavened bread. He put it out on a, on a pot and laid it out. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And he said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He said, Wow! Okay, you've made a believer out of me. Partly. I need some more encouragement. So as we read the story, then God told him, okay, this is your assignment. Verse 25, take your father's bull and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the wooden image that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the rock and the proper arrangement, etc., etc. So he did it, but he did it at night. Why did he do it at night? Because he was scared. Now think about it for a moment. I mean, was no one going to find out the next day when the altar to Baal had fallen down? But that's the way our minds work. He, he, he was still needing some encouragement. Of course, they found out about it. Then they said, Gideon's done this. And they, the Midianites came up to attack. But the Spirit of the Lord, verse 34, came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, the shofar, and the Abia's rites gathered around behind him, those who were of his immediate sub-tribe, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him. But he still needed encouragement, verse 36. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, now this is interesting because he already blew the trumpet. I mean, he already declared uh, war against Midian. You know, it was he was kind of committed, but he didn't have full trust. And you know, God didn't chide him for that. God backed him up and encouraged him. He said. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry in the ground, that's very unusual. That doesn't happen in real life. Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. 
Then Gideon said to me, you know what would really convince me? Please be patient with me, but can you do the opposite next time? Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and all the ground around. Let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry in the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So it seems like at this point, okay, now I'm ready. Now I can trust in you. But look what God did. Chapter 7 of verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, you know what? You got too many soldiers. The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Can you imagine seeing Gideon's jaw dropping? He, you know, God was encouraging him all this time, was bolstering his confidence, was giving him reason to trust. And now, two-thirds of his army walked away. But you, you can imagine Gideon must have said, okay, well, I, it's okay. I can handle this. I can take it. I trust God. He's been with me. I've seen him. But then the Lord said to Gideon, you know what? The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that those of whom I shall say, this one shall go with you, and the same shall go with you. Of whomever I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those, now remember, there were still, what, 10,000 there? The number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let everyone else go. Double jaw drop. Gulp. You know, 300. <clears throat> Josephus brings out something that I think makes this even more interesting. He says, Now that they might not pass God over, but ascribe the victory to him, and might not fancy it obtained by their own power, because they were a great army, and able of themselves to fight their enemies, but might confess that it was owing to his assistance, he advised him to bring his army about noon in the violence of the heat to the river, and esteem those that bent down on their knees and so drank to be men of courage." But for all those who drank tumultuously on their, uh, uh, on, uh, lying on the ground, that he should esteem them to do it out of fear, as in dread of their enemies. So when Gideon had done as God had suggested to him, there were found 300 men that took water with their hands tumultuously. In other words, out of fear, like they were trying to get it real quick before their enemies were, would come behind them and surprise them. So not only did God limit the army from 10,000 to 300, but he took the ones who were 
actually a little bit more fearful. Now, why did God do this? You know, there's an interesting thing. As God was helping Gideon to have trust in him, he was encouraging him. He was building his confidence. He was saying, I'm here for you. But then he also recognized, you know, just as fear can destroy trust, so can pride. If they wind up winning the battle and they feel like this was my doing, that will destroy trust in God just as much as fear will. And so as he rose his confidence, he had to lower his pride. He had to humble him. And only then was he ready. Now, at this point, Gideon was a little bit afraid again. (laughs) Imagine that. And so God said, look, if you're afraid, go down, sneak into the camp, and I'm going to reveal to you through one of the dreams that the Midianites will say that they are having a dream that you're going to attack, and they're worried. And, of course, that's what he did. He went down to the camp. Then he knew that was the signal, and he finally attacked. Brethren, what about us? You know, it's interesting how God has whittled down the church, in a sense. We used to have 150,000 people go to the feast a few years ago. But God allowed events of the past few decades to reduce our numbers and maybe partly to let us know that whatever he accomplishes is because of his power and not ours. Because of his greatness and not ours. And he humbles us, but he encourages us too so that we will trust him. Brethren, as we go forward into uncharted confusing and sometimes dangerous times, where do we put our trust? In our bank account? In our guns and ammunition? In our stored food? Not wrong to store food. It's good to store food. But is that where we're putting our trust? In our job? In other people? In our government? in our gold, in our silver, or stocks. Again, not wrong to have heavy metals at this time or plan for the future. But where do we really put our trust? Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. That's what this day is about. putting our total trust in God, especially as we see these things approaching. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, he says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your trust? To trust completely in Him. It doesn't mean that we don't do our part. It doesn't mean that we don't find ways to 
overcome our obstacles, but we trust in how God is leading us with all of our heart and all of our soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord God, also the earth with all that's in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose your descendants after them, you above all people, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, like we heard about a week ago, and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. That encourages us on this day as we think of the events coming to pass. That our God is one who's powerful, and as we cry out to Him, and as we lift up our voice, and as we sound the trumpet in times of trouble, He hears, He remembers, and He saves. That's what He promised. Do we trust Him? You know, it's easy to have trust when things are going real well. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of trust in God. Everything's going great. You know, good job, money in my pocket, gas in the tank. You know, everything's fine. But it's a little bit harder when we have trials. How are we going to face the trials ahead down the road a little bit that we talk, we read about with confidence and with trust? Well, we do it by practicing now. Are we facing him? Are we facing our trials with confidence now? James chapter 1 and verse 2. James chapter 1. Are we looking to him? Are we fully engaged? Or are we resisting our God and the way he's leading us in different Every aspect of our life. James chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. He doesn't chide us for asking for help, for asking for more courage and asking for more trust. And it will be given in. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Are we unstable? What makes us unstable? Well, when we doubt that God has, really has our best interest at heart. When we begin to think, you know, God doesn't know what he's doing. He he seemed to drop the ball on this one. He doesn't really understand why, you know, what I want here. Why is he letting this happen to me? Doesn't he know this isn't good for me? (laughs) I don't like it. It seems there are several stages of doing the things we don't want to do that God wants us to do. The first might be outright resistance. You know, nope, I won't do it. I refuse. Now, thankfully, most of us here are are not in that stage. You know, we, we 
We're here because we're responding to him. We've been called. And when we resist, if we over time, if he's calling us and, and he softens our heart and we respond and we start to obey him. But then might come a second phase. Let's call it grudging obedience. We heard Mr. Wakefield talk about, you know, being a, a, a grudging giver. Grudging obedience. Well, I'll do it because you said so, but I don't really want to. And if we're in that state of mind, are we really trusting him? If with our body we are pressing on the gas, but our mind is putting on the brakes, what happens when you do that long enough? Something snaps, right? When we're doing the right thing on the outside, but inside we're resisting and we don't want to do it, eventually one or the other is going to cause the other to break down sooner or later. But if we keep responding, if we keep asking God to help us to trust you more and remove another layer of resistance, maybe the next layer might be cooperation and compliance. Now, this is better. It's better than outright resistance. I know I'm supposed to want what you want. I want to want what you want, but I just don't want it yet. You know, you know what I mean? I want to want it but I don't feel it inside. We're complying. We're cooperating with God. But is that ultimately what he wants? Just compliance? Is that what he says in the book? Comply with me, and you will be happy. Just cooperate with me, people. Please, cooperate, and then you'll be blessed, and everything will go... I don't think so. Again, now we, we don't say this <clears throat> outright, but sometimes is it in our hearts that we're not completely sold on the fact that he really has our best interest at heart. We're complying, but we don't really feel it. Our heart's not in it. God's bringing us along. He's helping us, but we have to keep going to the next step. Maybe the next layer as we ask him to help us is unenthusiastic acceptance. (laughs) We accept it, but yeah, we're still not very enthusiastic about it. Okay, I know it's your will, so I accept it, and I'm resigned to it. Is that what God wants? Resignation. (laughs) That we go through life and we're pretty much resigned to doing what he wants. Do you see how these these stages are okay up to a point, but we've got to break through them to finally get to what he said. Give me your whole heart and all your soul and all your might and all your strength, your total trust. We have to come to that point that in any possible situation, we can say that and mean it. Brethren, is there any part of your life, and I ask the same of me, of my life, is there any area where we're holding out on God that we don't really fully trust in Him? Is there anything that we don't want to give up 
You know, sometimes we can even say it outright. You know, I'll do anything, but I, 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 I won't do that. You know, sure enough, we're going to be tested on that someday if we say that. Or I'll do anything, but I won't go there and do that. Or I won't be, I won't give up this. You know, Jesus Christ even struggled with the will and, and really accepting the will when he was praying to the Father before his sacrifice. Let this cup pass from me. And in the end, even though it wasn't pleasant, it wasn't something that made him happy, but he was totally and without reservation committed to trusting God implicitly. That's where we have to go. And that's what this day partly symbolizes. The blowing of the trumpets. The trust that God wants us to have in Him. You know, 1 Corinthians 14.8 says, If a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? God wants us to go all out, not half-heartedly. Not like a wavering trumpet, not like a uncertain trumpet, but, but to go to him single-mindedly with one thing on our mind, that he is the most important being in the whole universe and nothing will stop us from trusting him. And we're not there yet. We have to grow in that. That's something that we are tested on and we are encouraged about and we are humbled for. But hopefully as time goes on, we learn to trust Him more and more and more. Let's turn over to Psalm chapter 81 and and verse 1. The the Jews uh, believe that Psalm 81 was written for the Feast of Trumpets, and it's read each year for that purpose. Psalm chapter 81, and it's very meaningful. As we think about our our life and our trust and where we're going. And can we depend on God? Because we're going to be tested on that in every aspect of our life. He says in verse 1, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel and the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. This is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went through the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble, and I delivered you. Isn't that what Numbers 10 was talking about? When you're in trouble, cry out to me. I will hear, I will remember, and I will deliver you. That's the promise. And God was reminding them that in Egypt, that's exactly what he did. He said, I remembered you, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder, and I also tested you at the waters of Meribah. Again, how do we look at tests? How do we look at trials? Do we see them as an opportunity for God to help teach us trust? Because we cannot trust in ourselves and ultimately trust Him. We have to be tested 
And he tested them at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. Israel, if you will listen to me, there will be no, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. Nothing can come before me, he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways, and I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him. Are we just pretending? Why are we here? God is patient. He is merciful. And he will help us. But we have to go all out and not be pretending. But their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. You know, it's interesting. Talk about the place of safety in the future. God can certainly bring water from the rock. He did it before. He can do it again. But look at that. He even says he'll bring honey from the rock. That's not a bad deal, is it? That's even better than water. Well, I guess you need both, but, you know, pretty nice. We'll go through tests. We'll go through trials. But he says he will deliver us. This day is not just about judgment and punishment. It's about faith. It's about confidence. It's about trust that has been tried and refined in the fire over and over and over again to the point where God knows we will trust Him implicitly forever without question, end of story. And that's where we have to go. You know, I read a little bit from the book from Alfred Adersheim, The Temple, Its Ministry and Services. I like to read a little further than I did last time. He says, The Mishnah holds that any kind of horn may be blown except those of oxen and calves in order not to remind God of the sin of the golden calf. The Mishnah, however, specially mentions the straight horn of the antelope and the bent horn of the ram to be blown on this day. Now, why? Why is that? Well, because the latter had special allusion to the sacrifice in substitution of Isaac. It being a tradition that New Year's Day, this day, the Feast of Trumpets, was that in which Abraham, despite Satan's wiles to prevent or retard him, had offered up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. According to Jewish tradition, Abraham was told to offer up Isaac on this day, the Feast of Trumpets. Knowing that God could resurrect his son, knowing that God was always faithful, knowing that God had promised Isaac was the one through whom he would have blessings of multitude of of offspring without number, knowing that God could not lie, so would accomplish this, and that knowing that God would not require him to do anything that was not absolutely necessary. Abraham passed this incredible, unfathomable test of trust. 
being willing to offer his own son. Brethren, hard times are coming. That's what this day tells us. We have to learn total faith and trust and confidence for the future, but also for the trials that we endure and the things we go through now. Let's turn in conclusion to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Do we really believe this? In verse 28, we say it a lot, we refer to it a lot, but it's hard when we're in trials. He says, Romans 8, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Do we believe it? Do we trust Him? That's the question. That's the challenge for us on this day of trumpets. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he also called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God has shown that he will move heaven and earth to save us. And he would spare nothing, even his own son, to save us. How can we not trust him? He says, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord and from the trust in our God. Brethren, we don't know what God will require of us, individually or collectively, but we do know He's always faithful. We do know He's always good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We do know He's our Father who always loves us and even didn't spare His own Son so that He might fulfill His purpose for us, so we might have life. We do know that if we cry out to Him, we lift up our voice like a trumpet, that He will hear, He will remember, and He will save. Brethren, on this day of trumpets, let's make sure we are putting our total, wholehearted, and growing in it, an unwavering trust with all of our being every day.